We are in John chapter 21. It's usually an Easter passage, but it's not really an Easter passage. So we're looking at it today. Uh, It takes place eight days after Easter. It's a resurrection passage, and resurrection shouldn't be for one day a year. This is a 365-day-a-year situation for Christians. Now, as the world has been lately opening back up in more and more and bigger and bigger ways, and people have started planning more and more firmly lately, one thing I have been looking forward to and dreaming about, one prospect I'm really excited about, is taking a group from Judson to the Holy Land. I've been talking about it for a little while. I don't know if I told you this, but I got to go about five years ago, 2017. I rarely bring it up, but you all act like I bring it up all the time. I was excited when I got back. You'd be excited too, and you will be excited when we get there. It was a wonderful experience to walk where Jesus walked. And over the course of not even two weeks, oh, we went to dozens and dozens of significant biblical sites. It was amazing, but the thing is, Pastor Zach just turned 44. Memory is fading a little bit on some of those things. And I don't think that's going to get any better in the years to come. I think we got to go back, make new memories. And for those of you who have not been, make some new memories. And one thing that I'm really excited about is probably the one thing that I remember most clearly. Like I can close my eyes and be there again. The highlight of the whole trip for me, which was going to this little stone church of St. Peter on the Sea of Galilee at the traditional location where this event that we're reading about in John 21 took place, where Jesus came and appeared to his disciples, had breakfast with them on the beach, and then went and walked and talked with Peter, what we call the restoration of Peter. I remember we stopped by there, and it was obvious it was supposed to be kind of a quick in and out, have a look around. Isn't this a pretty beach? Isn't that a pretty church? Get back in the bus. And I was just like, no, I'm staying here for a while. And Nobody wanted to have an altercation with me, and so they just waited, and and we had, actually people came back out, we had a a while there, and we worshiped there a little bit, and we had prayer there, and for me it was so important, a place, a site, because it's such an important event in the early church, that this guy who was in leadership, and then fell, and fell hard, was then restored by Jesus. I still love you, you're still my servant, you're still my disciple, in fact, I will do even greater things through you. If you want to picture it, the thing that was most striking to me is that unlike when you're on the Mediterranean Sea, the beach was rocky and not even like UP rocky where it's kind of rocky, but like big rocks. Like you could skip every stone that was there on that beach. It was, it was really rocky. And so I imagine them, the sound that it made as Jesus and Peter are walking along And it was also early morning, not quite as early as this, first light, but in the early morning we saw kind of a fog, a haze over the Sea of Galilee, and it was just beautiful. And I thought, I wonder how that might have affected how they looked out and saw this man calling to them and weren't quite sure who he was. Maybe through the haze it was hard to see. But what happens here, the background, is that after Jesus has died... He has risen again. He has appeared here and there. In the uh, Gospel of John, he's appeared twice. But there's probably, if we harmonize the Gospels, a handful of times he's appeared to his disciples. And then he's told them, go to Galilee. And they've gone to Galilee. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. And we see that it's several guys together. You've got Peter, of course. Then you've got Thomas, called the twin. Then you've got Nathaniel. And the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John. And of course, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
had been pre-Jesus business partners, fishing partners with Peter and his brother Andrew, who is conspicuously absent here. And they're back in this place where they have this shared past, which is we go out on the lake and we fish. We throw out our nets and we draw them in. We talk, probably joke, laugh, sing the same songs, do the same stuff. They had a, a comfortable routine. And they saw those boats there and they said to themselves, we're waiting, we're doing nothing. Finally, Peter simply states, I am going fishing. He doesn't say, let's go fishing. He doesn't say, anyone want to go fishing? He says, I am going fishing. And I kind of assume that it started with kind of a standing up abruptly and saying, I'm going fishing. Peter's the kind of guy who doesn't like waiting, not even waiting on Jesus. He's a man of action. When the, when the mob arrives to arrest Jesus, he doesn't say, all right, let's hold on, let's talk this through. No, he says, oh, there's my sword, and he goes for the high priest's servant immediately. He's a man of action, and there's not any action, so he wants some action, even if that's just sitting in a boat all through the night trying to catch some fish. Something to get back to a sense of normal, to get back to a sense of predictable after his world has been just shaken and turned upside down. Now, the reason they're in Galilee, as I mentioned, is that Jesus instructed them. In Mark 14, 28, he says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, implying you come after me and meet me there. And even on Easter morning, both the angel at the tomb and then Jesus himself reiterate that. Tell the guys, I'll meet them in Galilee. Once again, that's Galilee with a G. So Peter, who hated waiting, is, is obeying, but he's also apparently a little frustrated or a little bit impatient or a little bit stir-crazy. And so he says, that's it, I'm going fishing. And all the guys say, we'll go with you. Just something to get out of the house. We're going to go out on the open lake. Now, the other thing that's going on with Peter is that he is weighed down spiritually by a humongous failure that just a week and change earlier he had been put to the test and found horribly wanting. I'm sure you all know the story, but he's feeling like perhaps he's not valuable as a disciple. And, and I don't want to play pop psychologist, armchair historical psychologist, but I have to imagine part of him thinks, I've proven bad at that. Let me at least do something I'm good at. Let me at least go out there and, and try my hand at this fishing again. And it'll feel good to pull in a full net of fish like I did in the old days. And they would always fish all night in the cool because the fish come up to the top. They go down to the depths during the day to hide from the heat. They come to the top and they're easy to pull in. And then in the morning, you can sell perfectly fresh fish right away. And then you got the whole day. You know, you got to sleep sometime, but you got the whole day to yourself. So it was, it was kind of a welcome change for Peter, at least in theory. And off they go to fish. But again, in the back of his mind, I mean, think of the worst thing you've done, the thing that when you think of it, immediately there's regret, there's shame. That's how he's feeling right now as he heads out into the fish. Maybe part of this is just let's occupy my mind. Sitting in that upper room or in that, in that back room or wherever we're waiting in Galilee, all I have is my thoughts. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm thinking, I'm trying not to think about you know what, because what happened was after he said, I mean, just immediately after that verse I just read, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, even though they all fall away, these jokers, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me 
three times. And you know the story, so he did. Yes, he was the first to pull the sword and jump up in front of Jesus. But when it came to being tested, and tested not even all that hard, but just by a servant girl, a random guy in the crowd, a few officials, weren't you with Jesus? He caved. He broke. He said, no, no, I wasn't. I don't know the man. You're crazy. And then finally, with an oath, he swore, I have never even met him. And then the rooster crowed. Jesus locked eyes with him, a penetrating stare, and and he was immediately filled with guilt and regret and ran away. Now he is back in his old life, at least for the morning. I don't think this was any indication that they were going to abandon Jesus and go back to fishing. But for the moment, for the day, they're going to go back into their old patterns. And here he is, throwing out the net like they did, pulling it back in like they always did, and catching zero fish. He's a failure even at this. I can't imagine how low he felt at this point. You imagine you've already, you, all right, I failed at that, but I know I'm good at this. Oh, apparently not. Apparently, I'm just a loser, spiritually and in every other way. I think that is a pretty faithful rendering of the backdrop to the events of this chapter. So as they're admitting defeat in the morning, saying to themselves, we're, we're not going to catch anything. How about we head back in? Jesus comes up on the shore, calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? No. Fishermen to this day hate to admit that. Am I right? Did you catch anything? No. No, we haven't caught anything. And so he immediately says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And I have to imagine in these first moments of this encounter, something in the back of Peter's mind said, this is all very familiar. Being out, fishing all night, catching nothing, Someone asking us about it. Why is this so very familiar? And so Jesus says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They were not able to haul it in. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself. So the apostle John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, He put on his outer garment, for he had stripped it off and threw himself into the sea. When I read this and when I picture it in my mind, I see Peter having this kind of click, fast-forward montage. You know how they'll do that sometime in a TV show? Someone will be like, wait, and they'll show you everything that they're putting together in their mind. I imagine that Peter saw his first encounter with Jesus right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We read about it in Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Or we read from Luke 5, 1 through 11. Let me actually just read that passage. It's a little different angle on that calling of Peter and Andrew, James and John. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men, people. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So you have there the follow me, the leaving the nets, but a little more detail there in Luke. And you have to imagine this suddenly came, wait a minute, this is very familiar. John recognizes him, says it, and Peter quickly wraps his, he's already wearing his tunic, he wraps his cloak around himself and jumps in and swims back to shore. I think this is the very same dynamic we see between John and Peter on Easter morning, when they hear word that Jesus is risen, or at least that he's not in the tomb, they rush there. John's faster. He gets there first, but he stops short and looks in. He's taking in what's there. He's analyzing it. He's thinking about it. Jesus isn't here. And then Peter gets there and blows right by him, impetuously runs right in. Similar thing here. John looks and assesses and says, that's the Lord. And Peter doesn't even wait a second tie the, the coat on, jump in, and he swims 100 yards. Now, I was a swimmer in high school. I've many times swam the 100-yard freestyle. It's not too hard. You can finish it about a minute and a half, even if you're not a strong swimmer. I've never done it with two garments on, though. Nothing was going to hold this guy back. from. He's not going to wait for the boat. The boat's being pulled down with fish. He's not going to help with the fish. No, he's going to go and see Jesus. So he, he goes all the way back and he stops and he just looks at him. And the other disciples then come in after him, dragging the fish. And someone's got to count the fish in this story. Can you imagine in that moment, face to face with the risen Savior, count the fish. It's your turn. 153 of them. And he says to them, come and have breakfast. And they see that he's got a, a charcoal fire and he's laid on it fish and bread. And he invites them to come. I can't imagine how incredible this was. They'd encountered the risen Christ here and there momentarily, but this is breakfast with him. And breaking bread together, remember, table fellowship, even if it's not at a literal table, is the closest form of fellowship you can have with another in, in that culture. And they watch him as he prepares and blesses the bread and the fish with nail-scarred hands, and no one dares say, who are you? For they all knew that it was the Lord. I think what we see here, this is often called the restoration of Peter. I think before any of that, we see the restoration of awe for Jesus in his disciples. The last time Jesus caused some of these men to miraculously catch a massive amount of fish, they were filled with awe, as I just read, and Peter was filled with this sense of, I'm not good enough to be in your presence, fell down at Jesus' knees in the boat and said, just get away from me. I'm too sinful. Get away. And Jesus said, don't worry, I'm going to make something of you. Now, three and a half years later, they again feel this sense of awe, renewed awe at his presence. But now they all know that he forgives sins. 
And He restores us when we wander away like sheep gone astray. Like, yeah, we are unclean people, or like Isaiah said, of unclean lips, but there is cleansing and purifying in Jesus Christ. After breakfast, Jesus addresses Peter. And in verse 20, makes it clear that he basically says, Peter, come walk with me. They're not still at the fire because John later follows after them. He says, come, come on, let's, let's go have a talk, a long overdue talk. It's been days, week and a half since these events where you rejected me and denied me and, and we need to talk about this. And he asks him, he asks him three times, do you love me? And the first time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And it's not clear from the grammar what he means there. He could mean, do you love me more than these other guys? Which would probably seem like a reference to how Peter said, I don't care what they do, they might all fall away, but I won't. Hmm? You really love me more than these? That seems to me less likely than Jesus saying, do you love me more than these? The boats, the nets, the fish, the old life that you were flirting with going back to. Do you love me more than all of this? All of the things that you thought might bring you satisfaction in your life before you encountered me. He says three times, you know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? You know I love you. Tend my sheep. And in this restoration of Peter, we see that our God is not a God of second chances, as it's often said, but of third, fourth, fifth, ten thousandth chances. Because Peter's used up his second chance like ten minutes into his ministry. Right? He's the one who said to Jesus, oh no, no, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus turned and rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. All right, I'll give you a second chance. Third chance. Fourth chance. Peter's beginning to understand the depth of grace that can be found in this Jesus. Now, this is often called, as I've said, the restoration of Peter, but I think that may be a bit misleading. Peter's already been forgiven. He's already encountered Jesus. This is when Jesus gives him the assurance of a fresh start. The assurance that, yeah, you're forgiven, but also this stuff's not going to follow you around and change your status in the church and drag you back. It's not going to define you going forward. If only he had taken Thomas aside and said to him, that doubting thing won't define you going forward either. Maybe we'd stop calling the poor guy Doubting Thomas. But we don't call Peter Denying Peter. And that is the point here. That's not who he is. He's not the best fisherman in the world. He's not the best disciple in the world of his own strength. But Jesus is not through with him. And Jesus is giving him yet another fresh start. Do you love me more than these, Lord? You know that I love you. Now, there are here a number of connections. First, obviously, between the first time that Jesus called Peter and James and John and Andrew properly in the boat after a miraculous catch of fish. That's, that's bookends here, of course. But then there are connections between the time that Peter betrayed Jesus and the time that Jesus restores Peter. I want to point out four things here. First of all, both of these things happen at a fire. And you might say that's a bit of a stretch. But go back and look at John 18, 18. This is Peter in the courtyard, and he is followed at a distance when Jesus has been arrested and everyone's scattered. And then, and then Peter kind of says, John, come on, let's follow. But 
hold back, hold back. John knows the high priest. He's known to his family, so they're able to slip in. They sit in the courtyard. It's cold out. And we read this. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And that's when they said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? And he said, I am not. That's a weird detail, a charcoal fire. Jesus is being beaten and punched and, and mocked and, and it's an illegal trial and, and like human history is coming to a climax and John says, by the way, the kind of fire, charcoal fire, in case you wondered. Why would he put that detail in there? I think because it's around a charcoal fire that Peter had denied Jesus in the darkness of night and now it is around specifically a charcoal fire that he once again communes with Jesus in the first light of morning. A new day has dawned. I think that's the second connection as well. We, we know that Peter fled as the rooster crows, which means as the sun was just coming up and as Good Friday was just beginning. The worst moment of his life happened as a new day was dawning. He heard the rooster. He remembered Jesus' words. You will deny me before the rooster crows three times. And now think about this. Every day after that, every day since has started, apparently even in the urban setting of Jerusalem, at the beginning of a day you hear roosters crowing. And every day, the first thing that happens then is that he's reminded of his failure. A new day is starting. Oh, again. Again I'm reminded, and again I'm waiting for Jesus, and again I'm stuck in this room with these guys, and we're getting on each other's nerves, and we're alone with our thoughts. Of course he wanted to go fishing. But then look at this. It's at the end of a bleak, hopeless night, and at the very first light of day, when the, the crowing of the rooster heralds the reiteration of guilt for him, instead, he hears the calling of Jesus to him. It's now a new, new day. Eighth day after the resurrection, of course, the resurrection being the first day of the week. In numerological terms, we talk about that as the eighth day as well, the beginning of a, a new age, something new. And, and in Peter, this is the beginning of something new. A new day that is not going to be just a reminder of how he's fallen, how he's broken, how he's bluster and boastful, all talk. And when he hears the words of Jesus, I have to imagine that this transforms the sound of the rooster's call tomorrow morning and the day after that from a reminder of how big a sinner and screw-up he is to a reminder of how great and loving a Savior Jesus is. As this day begins with, have you caught anything? Try casting your nets on the other side. And this realization, it is the Lord. He's alive. He's alive indeed. Let's have some breakfast with him. Those beautiful words of restoration reminding us of Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, there is the connection that three times he denied Jesus. And three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? So kind of canceling out that earlier denial and you expect me to go on and on about the theological significance of the number three but I'm not going to there is some but I think what we see here really is is the idea of you know that, that truth is established with the mouths of two or three witnesses you got three witnesses you've really established something right and if something is, is attested three times it firmly establishes it holy 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 is God almighty thrice holy not just a little holy, not more holy, most holy. So for Peter to deny Jesus, not once, not just twice, but three times, it is an 
absolute denial. Even today, if you want to fill something out, here I am back with, with, with documents, if you want to fill something out and have it be official and absolute and secure, you fill it out in triplicate, don't you? Well, Peter denied him in triplicate. And so Jesus restores him in triplicate, establishing for him this new life, this new chance, this fresh start. In verse 11, we read, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I think we see there also a connection back to Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his parables. When he said that the kingdom of God is like a dragnet, you cast it in, and we pull in all kinds of fish. The net's not torn, even though there were so many fish it should have been. A reminder for Peter, who if anybody was the wriggly fish that's getting out, breaking out, getting lost, it would have been him. You're not. The nets won't break. My hold on you is that secure. I hold you that closely to myself. Just like the law, the, the Ten Commandments, rehearse the covenant of works broken in the garden and then point us forward to a covenant of grace. So Jesus orchestrates this encounter to mirror the first encounter that he had with Peter and his last big failure, but then point him forward to a fresh start. Peter's past is, is just littered with broken promises, empty devotion, failed spiritual boasting, but Jesus has good news about Peter's past. It's his past. That's the good news. It is in your past. Do you love me? Present tense. Feed my sheep. Present future. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Tend my lambs. Take care of my sheep. And even when Peter falls back into it again, it's still not who he is in Christ. His old self is not his identity. His past is his past. It might come back to haunt him, but it will not come back to own him. Certainly it will not define him. Peter had run away in shame after he denied Jesus, and he had hidden. And even though Jesus had appeared to him a handful of times since that resurrection, this is the first time he reacts the way he does. Jumping in, swimming to him, I gotta get to him, I gotta get to him, and I gotta hang on to him, and I gotta talk with him. It's the first time that they have this, this chance to talk together, and you have to wonder why. What was different about this time from the times before? And I think maybe Peter just needed some time. You ever fallen into sin and find it hard to repent and turn to God and pray again and think, ugh, you probably didn't want to hear from me. I did the same thing again. That sin I thought I had conquered years ago, I fell into it again. And you have to be reminded by the gentle coaxing of the Holy Spirit drawing you back to himself. Yes, I do want to hear from you. This isn't your second chance. This is your two millionth chance. Remember our relationship? Remember the grace that I have for you, the enemy would use it to separate us from our Savior. But Jesus will not let that happen. Let's go. Let's talk. You and me, we need some time together. And at first, Peter seems a bit hesitant to answer Jesus' questions. He, he, first of all, he says a different Greek word for love. They're talking two different languages kind of at the beginning. Do you agape me? Agapao is the, is the verb there. Jesus' love, the self-giving love. And he says, you know that I phileo you. It's kind of the brotherly love. And, and John does sometimes use this for God's love. So I don't think we want to draw a harsh distinction. But at the beginning, they're actually not even saying the same word. 
And then he also says, hey, you know all things. If that's not a compliment, you know, you know, you know all things, you know already. Why are you asking me this? It's important for him to ask the question and for Peter to make the affirmation and for Jesus then to re-establish him as the rock on which the, the church is built. Aaron also read for you this morning from Luke chapter 9. The gentleman who wants to follow Jesus, he wants to proclaim the kingdom, but he says, first, let me bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And, and I remember as a kid reading that and thinking, man, that is harsh. This guy just lost his dad? No, he didn't just lose his dad. That, that, that wouldn't happen. In, in that culture, the day you died was the day you were buried. There wasn't like, hold on, we're having a viewing next week and then we're doing these other, no, you can't go. Rather, I must bury my father was a common figure of speech, meaning let me wait until I receive my inheritance on this earth and I deal with all that stuff. Then I've got time for you. And when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying the spiritually dead take care of the things of this world. We've got a gospel to proclaim. Don't put it off till you've dealt with everything in your life. And then right after that, in Luke 9, 62, he says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You have to look forward at a fixed point when you're plowing. If you're looking back, you're going to get all these weird furrows in your field. It's not going to work out for you. Well, this is something that Peter needs to relearn. Stop looking back. You know what? Let the dead bury the dead. Or your sins, go ahead and bury them. They're behind you. They're under the blood of Jesus. Remember, Jesus knew not only Peter's strengths, but his glaring weaknesses when he chose him to lead his church. In Mark 16, 6-7, we read, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. You remember this? The, the, the women are there, and the, the angel is giving them hope and encouragement. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Don't miss that. Not just go tell his disciples. There's 11 of them now. You know who they are. They're your best friends. No, go tell his disciples and Peter. And make sure you say that and Peter. I want Peter to hear that. I want him to hear from the lips of Jesus, through the mouth of Mary, he still loves you. He still considers you his disciple. He still wants to meet you in Galilee. Don't give up. Don't turn aside. And don't go back to the old life. Jesus prepared this fire on the beach before he had called out to them. I think that's also significant. If you've turned away from God, if you've, if you've fallen back into the old patterns and old sins... He's stoking the fire of your restoration before you even encounter him. He's the one at work to do this. You will find him when you jump out of the boat and swim back to him, waiting for you, waiting to feed you, waiting to commune with you, waiting to restore you. He's preparing your fresh start before you even think that you might be able to have a fresh start. And when Jesus called out to them, I want you to notice what didn't change. Almost nothing changed. They're out there. They're tired. They're the same guys. The position of the boat hasn't changed. The condition of the equipment hasn't changed. The skill of the men hasn't changed. The only difference was the word of Christ. And he told them, yes, pop it on the other side. As if that's where all the fish are hiding. No, it's the word of Christ that makes suddenly their empty nets be full. And it's the word of Christ that makes Peter's empty heart suddenly full. Peter can't do it. The fire is being tended and built by Jesus. 
The miracle is being performed. The net's being filled by Jesus. Peter has to remember anew. He can't take care of everything. That's his besetting sin, perhaps, more than anything. His boasting. I'll never leave you. You're going to be put to death. I don't think so. I won't let that happen. I'll even die for you instead. Don't say that, Jesus. And then in the garden, get behind me. I've got a sword. Don't worry. I've been training and preparing for this moment. Peter is reminded here that Jesus is the one who provides. And when we fall away, I think that's an important thing to remember as well. He is the one who provides. He's the one preparing the fire. He's the one preparing our restoration. It's not on me. If it were, I would fall further and further away. My boat would drift further and further out into the sea until I had no hope whatsoever of being found. And I think what's most encouraging here is that Jesus does not just reinstate Peter as a fisher of men. Yeah, look, you fell away, but we're going to give you another try. No, he goes way beyond that. I am now trusting you to shepherd my sheep and feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. The little precious ones that need to be carefully, gently fed. And shepherd my sheep is the word there. Poimino, poimain is the word for shepherd. Poimino means to shepherd. He's saying, you be a shepherd for my sheep. You feel like you can't. You feel like you've lost the right. You haven't. I'm giving it to you. I'm, I'm ratcheting up your responsibility. Not just go and fish for men and pull them in and go, okay, you're converted. But once they're made disciples, feed them, shepherd them, tend them. Spurgeon wrote this on this topic. When sin is pardoned and the eternal safety of the soul is ensured, the next thing is to seek the purity of the soul and to secure a character that will be worth having throughout eternity. There is no character worth having that is not fashioned according to the character of Christ. He is absolute perfection. In him is nothing redundant, and from him nothing is omitted that ought to be there. To be perfect, we must be like Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. We are to conquer sins and wrong desires, and in the power of God's Spirit, cultivate grace and virtue. If I am a Christian, I am to mold my doctrinal opinions, my thoughts, my words, my character, and acts after the model of Christ's. What we see here is that Peter is not only restored back to the same position he was in, but he's given a shove in the direction of further sanctification, following Jesus all the closer, with all the more momentum. Not altogether different from how we, we talk about justification. It's not just as if I've never sinned. When you put your faith in Jesus and you're forgiven, it's not like you're back in the same precarious position as Adam and Eve in innocence going, well, I've got this second chance, but I hope I don't drop the ball again. No, you are infused with. You are given and credited positive righteousness from Christ that you now stand perfectly righteous before the Father. When he restores Peter, it's a moment of new wind and new fire and renewed passion for this man. It's not just, okay, don't think about that anymore. It's over. It's no, go ahead and think about that. And my grace and how through it I am able to take an empty net and fill it with fish. With it, I am able to feed you. There's something that you might miss in the, in the English translation here. When it says they come, they see the, the charcoal fire and there is on it fish and bread. Those are both in the singular. A fish and a loaf of bread. We got half a dozen guys here. Where did he get it, first of all? 
They haven't brought their fish in yet. And how's he going to feed them? Well, I think the same way he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's now going to, he's going to feed these five disciples with one and one. Why? Because he is the one who provides. He says, come back to me. I will feed you. I will restore you. I will forgive you. And together we will go forward and do greater things yet. We tend to go back to those things that are comfortable for us. The things that we thought would bring us satisfaction before we came to Christ. Pouring our life into them, whatever they were. Materialism or gratification of the flesh or drunkenness or lust or anger or blind pursuit of glory or fame for ourselves or whatever it was. We know it won't give us satisfaction, but it's familiar. But we know our our nets are going to come up empty. And when they do, look out. Look for Christ. There he is calling to you. Have you caught anything? Come here. Let's have breakfast. Let's start a new day together. Embracing the cross of Christ and the triumph of the resurrection, we do not have to be sidetracked or taken out of the game by our failures. Look at Peter. It's God's great providence that he picked the biggest screw-up for the greatest honor amongst these disciples. That now you go to St. Peter's Church and I almost guarantee it's going to be amazing and gorgeous and majestic. Walk in those doors and go, this is named after a a kind of a screw-up, but one who knew what Jesus can do with someone who simply says, yes, I'm sinful. I'm a sinful man. Away from me. No? You'll use me? All right, use me. And when I fall, I'll come back to you. And when I sin, I'll turn back to you. And when I look down and begin to sink beneath the waves, I'll reach up to you. And when I see you and I see there's a, there's a chasm between us, there's open sea between us, I'm going to jump out of the boat and I'm going to swim to you. And there I will commune with you. And I will follow you. Don't miss this. This final piece of these bookends at the beginning and end of Peter's involvement here in the ministry of Jesus Christ. After he, quote-unquote, restores or reinstates Peter as the leader of the disciples, he tells him, not only am I promoting you, essentially, so that now you will be feeding my lambs, shepherding my sheep, not just going out to catch and, and release, but to tend and to care for, then he tells him, you will actually be faithful to the point of becoming a martyr for me. And he tells him uh, in these kind of haunting prophetic terms what kind of death with which he was going to glorify God. And looking back behind them, Peter sees John walking up uh, to, to join them. And he says, well, what about this man? And Jesus says, hey, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me bringing him all the way back to the beginning of their time together. The first words we ever have from Jesus directly to Peter are, follow me. And the last words we have directly recorded from Jesus to Peter are, follow me. And this after he assures him, you will be able to follow me. This is the promise that we have in Jesus. I don't know, as they say on the internet, who needs to hear that, but I know all of us need to hear it sometimes. Tuck it away. There will be a time when you feel separated, distant from your Savior. Know that He is waiting there with the fire prepared and the fish and the bread right there, waiting to bring you to Himself, to give you hope, to restore you, and to promise you that He loves you still. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this man, Peter, 
whose words we read last week, the wonderful opening of his two epistles, Lord, we know that those did not come out of nothing or out of a vacuum, but rather they came out of a life that, that was lived sometimes in the wrong direction, but ultimately always in the Christ word direction. We pray that as we look back at our own lives, we would see that same pattern. And where we don't, we pray we would stop looking back and focusing backwards, but rather put our hand to the plow and look ahead. And know that if we turn to you and trust in you, you will bring us down the narrow road all the way to eternal life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.